You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Speaking today on the worthiness of Jesus Christ. It's a joy to preach all of Scripture. It's been a particular joy to make this transition in the Gospel of Matthew to become more focused zero in really on the cross of Christ and then today on the worthiness of Jesus Christ. We're in Matthew 26, verse 6 through 13. Begin reading. Now when Jesus, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray, God, that you would visit us this morning with power, with anointing, the hearing and preaching of the word, for the salvation of sinners, strengthening of your church, the edification and glorification of Jesus Christ. Oh, please, God, guide all that is done and all that is said and heard in Christ's name. Amen. Our text today is about the lavish and extravagant worship of Jesus Christ, one of the most meaningful sermons I have ever heard was on this text, and that was, we had just as a church been convicted of contempt of court in January of 2021, and we were facing what we perceived to be probably about $100,000 in fines, and we had become the scorn of many Christians in Ontario and around the country. And I personally felt quite dejected and deflated. And I heard Steve, Pastor Steve Richardson preach on this just after our court conviction. And anyone who heard that sermon will remember how much hope and joy was fostered in our hearts for having listened to it. And so this is a particularly meaningful text, and I think I think think of that sermon and this text pretty well daily um, because of how touching it was for me personally. But here we are in this text of Holy Scripture, verses 6 through 13. And the text is on the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is worthy. He's worthy, and he's worthy of extravagant, lavish worship. We're going to see the time and the place 
of this encounter. We're going to see the lavish worship that occurs or occurred. Then the disciples' bad understanding and the Savior's right understanding. That's how it divides up. There'll be application throughout and then at the end. The time and the place, the actual act of extravagant worship, the disciples' bad understanding and the Savior's right understanding. Let's look at the time and place of this lavish worship. At least three other times in the Gospels do we learn of an anointing of Jesus Christ. Luke 7 tells us about a time when Jesus was anointed. That's not the same anointing as this one. There's various differences in what occurred. That one was in Galilee. This one is in Bethany, among other differences. It's not the same one. Still an anointing. However, Mark 14 and John verse 12 all describe the same event that occurs here. They describe the anointing of Jesus Christ by Mary at Bethany. And one of the things that Matthew does throughout his gospel from time to time is he moves back in time. And so the whole gospel of Matthew is not chronologically laid out. Sometimes he makes a bit of a shift here and there. Now, sometimes he makes it very clear that it is being laid out chronologically. He'll say, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and, and there's a sequence. But sometimes not so much. And so this actually, this text, if you look at verse 6, it doesn't say happened immediately after what precedes in the Gospel of Matthew. It just simply says, now when Jesus was at Bethany. So it doesn't say it happened immediately after Matthew 26, verse 5. It just says, now when Jesus was at Bethany. And that makes sense because John 12 tells us this happened on the Saturday before his crucifixion. Whereas last week's text occurred on the Tuesday before his crucifixion. His crucifixion was on Friday. So it's as if today's text in verses 6 through 13 were going back in time by a few days. And I think that's clear. In no way is Matthew's integrity compromised in how he presents this because he doesn't tell us that these things happen chronologically. He simply says in verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany. So we're going back in time a little bit. So much of time was spent on that Tuesday before his crucifixion, that very long day that I think was from about chapter 21 to chapter 25, or actually to, to the beginning of chapter 26. Well, here we go back to the Saturday. I think there's a reason Matthew puts things this way. I think that will come out clearly as I progress through the sermon. But nonetheless, we should note the timing of our text today as we look at the time and place of this lavish worship. The dating is on the Saturday before his crucifixion. The place is Bethany. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany. Now Bethany. Bethany is two miles outside of Jerusalem. And during the time of the Passover, which this was, about two million Jews would descend on Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
two million people would come in from out of town to celebrate the Passover, probably more than two million. And so Bethany was a bedroom community during the Passover time. People would be celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem, and they need a place to sleep at, the, at night. There's not enough places to sleep in Jerusalem, so they would find these little bedroom communities around Jerusalem, and Bethany was one such community. And so it was two miles outside Jerusalem. You could walk it, and it wouldn't take too long to get there. So people lodged there. It was a bedroom community is the millions of people descended upon Jerusalem for the Passover. This is one of the places where they stayed. This is the location, the time and place of this lavish act of worship. But I think most importantly is the home within Bethany that Matthew describes. And it is, it tells us here, now when Jesus was at Bethany, where in Bethany specifically, in the house of Simon the leper. That is very important that he observes he was in the house of Simon the leper. We don't know who Simon the leper is. This is, as far as I can tell, the only time in the Bible that he's mentioned. But we do know that at one point in time he was a leper, and I think that's what's important for us today. Jesus was in the house of Simon the leper where he received lavish worship. That is significant. Because, as we look at this time and place of the lavish worship, Leprosy was greatly stigmatized in the Old Testament, and rightfully so. And then the Pharisees, at the time of Christ, amplified that stigmatization in a very wrong way. But it was stigmatized, and then that was amplified by the Pharisees. I'll explain a little bit more. Leprosy is a skin disease. It's a bacterial infection in the skin that... Uh, is common in the tropics or subtropics. Jerusalem would be a warmer climate than ours, so it would have been common there. Leviticus 13 and 14 tell us that people who had leprosy had to be quarantined. They had to be exiled from society. You watch old movies from the Middle Ages, maybe, and there were leprosy camps, and these people had to be removed from society because they were, confer- they were concerned that the leprosy would spread among society, and you didn't want that. It's contagious. It's a bacterial infection. And beyond that, Leviticus 14 actually says that the homes of those who have leprosy had to be destroyed if the leprosy remained in the homes. So there'd be a season that would go by, and if the leprosy remained in the home, the home actually had to be reduced to rubble. So those who had leprosy were removed from society, they're quarantined, and those homes where leprosy persisted, those houses where leprosy persisted, were destroyed, torn down. It was, I remember the first time I, I talked about this in the Gospel of Matthew was in Matthew chapter 7. That must have been about three or four years ago. And I remember going to great lengths and pains in that sermon to describe how God's quarantine laws in the Old Testament are actually loving. They're designed to protect us. Because the perception would have been at that particular point in our history that quarantine laws seemed kind of harsh. But God quarantined, demanded that people who are sick with infectious diseases quarantine. Well, I think now we look back and now at this particular point in our our history, we can see how much more gracious God's quarantine laws are than our own public health quarantine laws. Right? They're much more kind and loving. They're designed to help people. 
Whereas what has happened in our own society has been to hurt people and has hurt people. But nonetheless, those were the quarantine laws. And the skin of the leper swells. The skin of the leper becomes thick, glossy, scaly. This is the skin. Sores and ulcers develop on the skin. The face swells. Fingers and hands and limbs begin to fall off. Eyebrows begin to fall off. This is all from the leprous infection. The person with leprosy, if it persists in their body, their face swells to the point where you can look at the pictures on the internet if you want at some point in time. The face swells to the point where their face actually looks and resembles a lion's face. And those who have leprosy, people in whom leprosy persists become quite hideous looking. And so you didn't want to spread leprosy in the community. And it was God's design that lepers be quarantined, and it was God's design that if leprosy persisted in their home for a season, their homes would be destroyed because you didn't want to spread it. Here Jesus is in the, in the home of Simon the leper. Now, it's, we can assume that Simon was healed by this point. In fact, I think you're fairly safe to assume that Simon was likely healed by Jesus because he healed lepers. The law can only diagnose the leprosy and tell you how to treat the, how to deal with the leper and isolate him from society, but Jesus can not just diagnose the leprosy, he can heal leprosy. He can do what the law cannot do. The law diagnoses sin in the same way, but has no power to heal sin, whereas Jesus has the power to heal and forgive sin. Jesus does what the law cannot do. The law simply diagnoses it, names it. So this, these Old Testament quarantine laws became exasperated or amplified in the New Testament, much like our own public health department has done over the, these last two years, where it becomes now a hard, cold, nasty way of dealing with the disease. The Talmud actually forbade Jews from coming within six feet of a leper or ten feet if the wind was blowing in that direction. If a leper saw someone approaching him, he would have to wave his arms in the air and say, unclean, unclean, and just communicate, stay away from me, stay away from me. One ancient rabbi said, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leper had walked. Another rabbi said, when I see lepers, I throw stones at them lest they come near. So you can see that there was a harsh treatment of lepers at the time of Christ. God had rightfully demanded the quarantine laws, but the, that by the time of Christ, the Pharisees had taken this to a place where it shouldn't have gone. And here Jesus is in the house of a leper. Now, as I said, I think it's safe to assume this leper, leper has been healed. And I think, furthermore, it's probably safe to assume that Jesus healed him. All of that being said, within this cultural context, it's very clear, I think, is he is named Simon the leper, and his house is named the home of Simon the leper, it's very clear that even he being healed, there was still stigma attached to him and stigma attached to his home. Simon the leper. There is something dirty about Simon the leper's home. So that if you got invited to a party at Simon the leper's home, you wouldn't want to go because you just don't want to go to that house. In fact, it's probably not a very nice house. It's probably some rundown shack out in Bethany. Why? Because Simon the leper would have been deprived of the ability to make and generate money throughout his life because he had leprosy. People wouldn't associate with him. 
And so I think it's fairly safe to say that this is a stigma that's attached to him. This is a stigma attached to his home. And this is communicating to us that this is an undesirable place to be. And here Jesus is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper as we look at the time and place of this lavish act of worship. In this case, in this case, it's not the leper's home that's going to be destroyed. It's the temple that's going to be destroyed. If you've been with us for any time and you looked at Matthew 23, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, what do we find? It's Jerusalem and the temple that's going to be destroyed. Because the leper's home, we're being told here, is more clean than the temple. You have this rundown leper's home outside Jerusalem in the town of Bethany, and you have this glorious, ornate, majestic, enchanted temple in the middle of Jerusalem on the mountain, this great, elaborate edifice in Jerusalem that you can see from everywhere in Jerusalem. That now has become the unclean place where Jesus is not worshipped and his worship is forbidden. But where is his worship? It occurs in the house of the leper. The leper's house is not going to be destroyed. It's the temple that's going to be destroyed because the temple was the place of uncleanness. I think that's why this is strategically put here by Matthew in the text. The leper's home is more, un, is more clean than the ornate temple, and Jesus receives more worship in the leper's home than he does in the temple. He receives more worship in the leper's home than he does in the temple. So this is the time and the place. The leper's home is being contrasted with this beautiful temple. And where is there more praise of Jesus? It's not in the temple. It's in the leper's home. We move on. Away from the time and place to the actual act of lavish worship. The actual act of lavish worship. If you look at the other gospels, you find that there's 15 men present when this occurs. And it says in verse 7, now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him. Her name is Mary. We find that in John 12, verse 3, Mary of Bethany. And she came up to him with something. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. Now, John tells us that the ointment came from pure nard, and nard is an oil that is extracted from the root of the nard plant in India. So this was an ointment that was imported from India in a time where trade wasn't as easy, especially international trade, cross-continental trade. And so this was expensive ointment. It was rare. It was precious. Some say that it was expensive. It was as costly as a year's wages. Some would say it's, it was as costly as an entire entire retirement savings, that's what have been what was held within this flask of nard, of this ointment. It's very expensive. It's very costly. At the very least, it's a year's wages. But some would estimate even more. It's an entire retirement savings. Likely, the flask was made of translucent stone, five to ten inches high, long-necked. And here she is bringing this ointment to Jesus. She's going to pour it on him. Now, 
your, your mind might go back to the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus after his birth. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when you give somebody gold, that's a lavish gift. If you go out and you buy your wife a gold necklace or diamond earrings, these are lavish gifts. They're precious stones and they're precious metals. They're jewels and they're metals. But I don't think there is as lavish as a precious ointment. Because if you buy your wife the diamond earrings, she's going to wear them again and again and again and again, and she's going to keep them. But if you buy somebody a precious ointment that's worth an entire year's wages, you use the ointment once, and it's done. This is how lavish this is. This is magnificently lavish. And look at what she does in verse 7. A woman came up to him with an expensive alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Right there in that moment, she spent a year's wages, and the home is filled with this beautiful scent of the ointment, and everybody is looking on Jesus, is this beautiful smell of the ointment is emanating from him, and they're saying, what just happened? And this woman's act of worship is so pure, so lovely. Charles Hayden Spurgeon said the beauty of this woman's act consisted in this, that it was all for Christ. Everything was for Christ at this very moment. There was nothing for her. There was nothing for anyone else. Everything was focused on Christ. The whole act was for him. It was completely Christ-focused, centered on Him. William Hendrickson said, when Mary was pouring out her perfume, she was also pouring out her heart, filled with genuine religious love, gratitude, and devotion. In that moment, her heart is being poured out to Jesus. Her heart is being given to Jesus. All of her affections are, are being given to Jesus. Jesus is the center of everything that she's doing right now. Her mind is focused on Jesus. Her act is focused on Jesus. Her wealth is focused on Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. It's about her love for Jesus. It's so selfless. It's so Christian. It's so beautiful. This dear woman and what she does for our Lord. And here in this run-down leper's home outside Jerusalem, something happened that didn't happen in the temple. Jesus was lavishly and opulently with extravagant, unsparing worship adored because of who he is. It's precious. It's a precious scene. No words can capture her love for the Lord at this particular point. And I hope your heart is moved towards Jesus this way. I hope your heart is full of love for the Savior, for what He's done and for who He is, for His cross work, for the forgiveness of your sins, but, but even more so for who He is, for Him being truly God and truly man, in all His beauty and all His wonder. I hope that you've given Him all of your love and affection. Your, and your obedience to Jesus and your worship of Jesus and your delight in Jesus should all flow of a heart that is so true with love towards Him 
that this woman has right here is exemplified in her. Your, your acts of kindness and love and adoration of Christ should not be done begrudgingly simply because it's got to get done. I mean, we have to operate on duty, don't we? But the duty should come from a heart that adores our Savior. It adores Him. And I, I think there's an immediate point of application here. Your Sunday worship. You know, the Lord wants us to worship Him together at least one day in seven. Your Sunday worship. There's an immediate application here. Your hearts and your lives should be prepared to come and give Jesus' worship on the Lord's day in church, together, as His people, to sing. We, our hearts should be so moved with love and tenderness towards our Savior, that, that our week is focused on coming together to participate in the act of praise to Him. Like, so many, I think, they, they think that church is, I'm going to church to consume, but no, we're going to church to profess our love to Jesus, mainly through our songs and through our prayers. And you say, well, I come to church to hear the sermon. Well, I think that's great. You should come to church to hear the sermon. But you ought to come to church to worship the Savior. You say, well, the, the preached word is central to the worship service, is it? Well, I think we learn how to worship from the preached word. But what are we coming to give to Jesus? And that's our worship. But I think an immediate application that needs to be made here is, is do do you love Jesus Christ enough? Are you devoted to Him enough that not only would you come to worship Him on a regular basis, but would you show up on time or even early to do it? And I, I, I had a sense of leniency because the parking lot was such a disaster for the last while, but it's not a disaster anymore. It's, it's looking pretty good out there. So, so do you have enough devotion in your heart toward... Like I, it's... As you look at it, and you see so many people coming into church late. And I understand, every, there's, things happen on Sunday morning. I mean, the dog throws up or something like that on your way out. I get it. These things happen, but that doesn't happen every Sunday. But yet every Sunday, it seems there's about 25, 20%, maybe 30% of the congregation that shows up after the service starts. And I think out of devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be showing up before the service starts, preparing our heart to worship Him, to receive the call to worship, and then to stand and sing to Him, because He deserves it. And it's not just simply us showing up to church to thoughtlessly and cold-heartedly mouth the words of worship to Him, but to simply from, with our hearts outpouring to sing His praise, because He deserves it. You say, well, I got a long way to drive. Well, somebody else has a longer way, and they still make it on time. You say, I got a lot of kids. Well, somebody else probably has more kids, and they still make it on time. The, the, the reality is, is we ought to be preparing for worship. Worship isn't just something we, we get up and do, like buying a, a bottle of milk at the store or something like that. Worship is something that there, where there's preparation, where our hearts are prepared to give something to our Lord on the day that He's asked to receive it. And what He is required of us is to gather and to sing to Him with our praises. And so I think some of you, if you have one goal over the next several weeks or a couple of months, it's I want to show up for church on time for four weeks in a row. 
And I think that would be a wonderful thing if you could. Our Lord deserves it. Our Lord deserves it. He absolutely does. But this is this woman's lavish act of worship towards him. Anything we do for our Lord and our Savior ought to come from a heart of love and admiration and adoration for who he is, knowing that we, he has purchased us with his very own blood. But beyond that, we move on from observing this act of worship, and we see here the disciples' bad understanding of what happened. After his lavish act of, or her lavish act of worship, the disciples start to resemble the Pharisees. Look at what they say in, in, in response to what happens. Verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, now remember, there's about 15 men in the room watching what's going on. The disciples are 12 of those men. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? Now, do you remember the last time we heard the word indignant? The last time we heard the word indignant is there were children who broke out in singing the praise of Jesus in the temple, and it was the Pharisees who were indignant over the worship of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in Matthew 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you see how quickly the disciples become like the Pharisees? I'm not up here to trash the disciples. I mean, this is recorded to us for, uh, for a purpose, and I think the purpose is to instruct us. You see how your past faithfulness, you can't just ride on your past faithfulness to God. It is a constant struggle and a constant fight to protect your heart from becoming the heart of a Pharisee. The disciples don't erupt in praise over our Lord, understanding what this woman has just done for him. The disciples' hearts, for some reason, have grown hard. This is a warning that faithlessness our faithfulness at one point is no guarantee of faithfulness at the next point, and left unchecked, our hearts will become just like then. Observe the hypocrisy, by the way. Look at the hypocrisy in verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, if they were indignant over the wasteful spending of money in the temple, it's never mentioned in, in Matthew. But they were indignant over this woman worshiping Jesus because that could have been given to the poor. That could have been given to the poor. We know from John, by the way, that Judas initiated this. And he wasn't concerned about the poor. He was the one, John tells us in John's gospel at this particular scene, we know that Judas was the one whipping them up. And Judas wasn't concerned about the poor because we find out later on that Judas, Judas was the treasurer of Christ's ministry and he was stealing from the treasury. His treasurer. He wasn't concerned about the poor. What he saw and why he whipped the disciples up was likely because he saw this alabaster jar for of ointment. He understand how much it was worth and he figured that woman should have given the money to the ministry so he could dip out of it. but it's under the pretense of giving to the poor. How much, by the way, as we talk about this under the pretense of giving to the poor, under the pretense of giving to the poor, how much bad policy and bad decision comes from government for the sake of the poor? For the sake of the poor. 
This is how they always couch it. This is how it's couched, and this is how Judas couched it, and this is how the hypocrites of today often couch it. And by the way, we should notice that one hypocrite can do so much damage in one church. One hypocrite can do so much damage, so much mischief in one church and exert such a negative influence over otherwise decent men. Twelve disciples, one of them is a hypocrite, and he whipped the other eleven up pretty good. One fake, one toxic malignancy within the disciples whipped up the whole lot of them, and they can, it can happen in churches, and I've seen it happen many times. Just one. It spreads like gangrene, as the Bible said. They would have, they would have hurt this poor woman, don't you think? These were the leaders, the 12 disciples. You don't get any closer to Jesus than the 12 disciples. The leading men in the kingdom of God. Now, I, I think this would have cut this poor woman right in the heart. Nothing, I don't, in my experience, nothing is more hurtful and nothing is more painful than when professing Christians cut us down for our lavish devotion to Jesus Christ. I don't think I've ever experienced anything more painful. When professing Christians question your motives or cut you down or rip on you for your lavish devotion to Jesus Christ. But even that being said, don't let that get in the way of your relationship and your devotion to Christ. Don't let it happen. You just remember this woman. Don't let it discourage your good behavior. Don't let it discourage your profession of faith. Don't, let, don't be tempted to walk away from Jesus. Just remember, if it happened to her, it could happen to you. But this is the disciples' bad interpretation of things. They have a terrible interpretation of things. And they strike out at this poor woman for the sake of the poor, the pretense. For the sake of the poor. Well, the Savior understands it. He gets it, and he has a proper understanding. We've seen the time, we've seen the place, we've seen the lavish worship, we've seen the disciples' bad understanding. Let's look at our Savior's good understanding. He offers affirmation, verses 10 through 11. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. The truth and the proper judgments are not judged by the, the men within the room. They're judged by Jesus Christ. He has the final judgment on the matter. And there are some things more important than the people around us, and that is the Lord Jesus and his adoration. The Lord Jesus is more important. His worship is more important. This is the, this is the gravest error I think the church made over the COVID era. The gravest error. And what was it? They stopped worshiping Jesus for the sake of who? Well, for the sake of their neighbor, the immune compromise, for the sake of grandma, for the sake of sick people. It's the same mistake they made. It's the same mistake. There's some things that are more important. There's one thing, at least one thing, that is more important than the people around you, and that is Jesus Christ. You see? They've, they've, they've lost their focus somehow, and they're caught up in this sanctimonious 
misplaced desire to love the people around them. Judas got them all whipped up over it, and they've lost sight of the most important thing. And there is at least one thing more important than taking care of the disadvantaged among us, and that is the glory of Christ. This was the greatest error that the church needs to repent of during those times. Christians were tricked into thinking they were giving their neighbors a favor by staying home, but really they were stealing from Jesus Christ. They said, well, couldn't we, just, couldn't we just shut our churches for the sake of our neighbors? That's just something we give up. Here's the thing. Our worship is not ours. It's Christ's. That's His. We don't give up what is His. It's a sacrifice to us. That's not giving up something that's ours. That belongs to him. And these disciples didn't see that here. Well, there's hope for the disciples, as we see later in the Gospels, and there's hope for the disobedient among us and within our country yet still. It's interesting, too. He says in the text, he makes the judgment call. The judgment call, this is an, a, a slight argument for any of you who might be entangled with Romanism, Roman Catholicism. He, he, it's not Peter that has the final say on this, it's Jesus, okay? It's not a council, it's Jesus that has the finer, final say on this matter. And, and by the way, it's also an argument against their doctrine of transubstantiation because he says here, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me with you. In other words, he will not always be bodily present with the church. Is God um, omnipresent? He will be present with the church, but his body and blood will not be found in the elements. He will not always bodily be with us. He will be with us. He says that in the Great Commission, but it is not bodily. He is present with us is the omnipresent God. It's a distinction. Yes, he is present, and yes, he is really present. But there's a distinction there. But either way, he offers her an affirmation. And he doesn't just offer her an affirmation. He offers an interpretation of what she just did. In verse 12, he says, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. It was customary to embalm people for burials, to anoint their bodies back then. It was a sign of respect for the body. Whether she knew it or not, what she was doing was preparing for Jesus to be buried. There's a point of application in that, by the way. Now, I don't know whether she knew she was preparing Jesus to be buried, but she was preparing Jesus to be buried. And that is that there ought to be respect and dignity shown towards the human body at burial, at death. You know, this is, it's, it's, it is not a Christian thing to burn the human body at death, to cremate the human. That's not Christian, that's heathen. The human body at death is to be treated with dignity and respect because it reflects the image of God, and that is what this woman is doing, and that is what Jesus is indicating that she was doing right there. The body should respectfully be laid to rest in the ground, and that is how they treated our Lord Jesus' body, at least his disciples tried to, and did lay him to rest in the ground. It certainly would have been cheaper to cremate him 
But that's not what they did because they want to show respect and dignity towards their Savior and towards His body. It is a heathen thing, and it is only with the onslaught of secularism that this has even become an acceptable idea within our society. But if you had gone back 75 years ago, in most churches, in all churches likely, it would have been, people would have gasped at the thought of cremating their dead. And so he offers an interpretation, and the interpretation is that she is showing respect for his body that is soon to be buried. She is preparing for his burial, and beyond the affirmation and interpretation, he also offers a prognostication. He predicts something that's going to happen in verse 13. He says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He predicts the future. He closes this with a sound of optimism. In chapter 26, verse 2, he predicts his death right before this. Right before this in verse 4, he predicts his crucifixion. In chapter 26, verse 14 through 16, right after this, Judas betrays him. In chapter 26, verse 12, he again, he speaks of his burial. But amidst all this black gloom that is descending upon society, he is declaring that this woman's good deed towards him and her love in honor of the Savior will be broadcast to the whole world. Did you see that? The optimism with all of this heavy darkness descending upon them. Verse 13, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be in memory of her or sit in memory of her. I don't think it's possible to give sacrificially to Christ without thinking that his mission is somehow worthwhile or to be successful. But there's an indication of optimism here. Somehow she believed this too. And here we are, by the way, 2,000 years later on the other side of the ocean, extolling this woman's virtue for what she did for Jesus. So what he said came true. Jesus will always vindicate his people's devotion to him. No matter how much the world scorns, no matter how much the professing church laughs in contempt and ridicule at those who are devoted to Jesus Christ, he will always vindicate his devoted. And they will be vindicated before everyone. How and when is not up to us, that's up to him. But the fact that he will do it is, is certain and more certain that I am standing here today. He will surely vindicate his people, even as he has vindicated this dear woman in the sight of his disciples. That should encourage anyone in this room who has received scorn or hostility because of your ardent devotion to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've received it from family members, people close to you. You've been betrayed. You've received it from other professing Christians or churches or church members or church leaders, whatever it is, Jesus will vindicate you for your ardent and sincere devotion to him. Even if it's cost you, you will be vindicated. And the world and those who have ridiculed you shall know. But this story warns us, even as it tells us about the vindication of God's people. It warns us how easy it is to become a Pharisee, even as disciples were taken into this. And it's not the majority of Christians who typically establish what is right. It's not even the majority of Christians who typically do what is right. Quite often, as it was in this case, it's a small minority who do what's right. When the rest of the church looks on in ridicule, which is what is going on right here in this text, we need to be so careful, don't we? We need to be so careful. If we're going to be characterized as doing what's right, do you know what has to happen to us? We have to be overtaken by perceiving the infinite and eternal worthiness of Jesus Christ. 
This is the only way. This is, if you, if you want to be characterized by doing what's right and standing in the minority with God's people and receiving the reproach of the world and being vindicated by Jesus Christ when that day and when that time comes, you have to understand, at least in part, enough to be consumed with the eternal worthiness of the Savior. You have to understand that all the reproach, all the scorn, cutting through all the deception, all of it is done. Why? Because he deserves our praise. He deserves it. He is worthy. And so we've seen the time and place. We've seen the lavish worship, the disciples' bad understanding, the Savior's right understanding. And if we've learned anything this morning, it is that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. And so we should sing in closing today because he is worthy and sing as if he is worthy. He most certainly is worthy.